All right, let's have the kids come up. I don't think we got too many this morning, but we got a few. All right, how is everybody today? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff here in there. All right. Heck, I'm going to give you a couple more. I'll make sure everybody gets one. Maybe there's enough there now. All right, so we have some things to talk about. Go ahead and have a seat. We'll talk a little bit, and then you guys can watch things as they occur. We have talked about truth before. Who can tell me what truth is? Any ideas? Paxton? actually had to happen. And so it is the opposite of what would be lying. lying or something that is not true or false. Okay, So Hugh, you right now, I can tell you right now, you have a better perspective on this than 75% of the politicians and academics in the United States. Because truth is very important, and truth is going to be something we're going to be talking about and looking at as we start to explore a little bit of the eschatological viewpoints of Scripture. Eschatological meaning the study of end times. Okay, In particular today, the parousia, the second coming of Jesus, and why it's important and why... Some people thought they might have missed it. Now, so true is important. Is it very important that we understand that it's true that Jesus is going to come back? Yes. Okay. So other things could be true. We're going to do some things. We're going to do some experiments here. I like experiments. So let's come on up, and everybody first gets a paperclip. Okay, one paperclip. Everybody gets one. Make sure you get one. You got two. All right. You get one or two. You don't want two, though. I mean, you don't want, you definitely don't want to um, try to do two. So I'm going to ask you this. Is it true that paper clips float? Oops. It didn't float. Okay, everybody put yours in. Are you going to put one in? Oh, you didn't get one? Well, there's plenty up here. Here you go. Put it in. Did any of them float? Is it true that paper clips sink? Yes. Now, is it true or not? Okay, back up, part to C. Sit down. There's a paper clip floating. Is it true paper clips float? Yes. Yes. Is it true paper clips sink? Yes. Yeah, they do. That one sunk. Okay, so how do we know what's true? What did we do? We tested our theories. Did paper clips float? Yes. They did. Did paper clips sink? Yes. Are both true at the same time? Yes. yes, and how do we know so? We tested it. We tested our theory against the reality of the bowl of water. Okay. You saw it. You experienced it. So what was the difference? The difference was how, how you put it on the water, wasn't it? Because there's surface tension on the water where the water holds itself together. And when you put it on there really flat and really slow, it'll float. But if you just drop it in like we did, it sinks. So what's true? Paper clips 
and and sink. Okay. And now we tested that and we know it to be true. Now, what about this? If I spin this ball and I put my finger on it and stop it, what happens to it? Does it keep spinning? Does it keep spinning? No. Okay, so that, that one, so it's true when the ball is spinning and I put my finger on it, it stops. All right. Go this. Here we go. Now the egg, what's going to happen? When it spins, if I don't drop it off the table and I stop it, what will happen? What do you think? Will it, will it continue to spin or will it not spin if I stop it? What happened? It kept going. So what's the truth? Do, does, does the egg still spin once I stop it? Yes. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Why do you think that is? Because the yolk inside is still spinning. So if I would have said, do things stop when I spin them, if I stop them, if I put a quarter in there and spun it and stop it, would it keep going after I let go? No. So what did we have to do to see this? And I didn't ask you ahead of time, what do you think it'll do? But what did we do to find out what's true about spinning the egg? We tested it. All right. Now, I've got to put some, this somewhere where I will not crush it. Tim does not want to be cleaning up eggs. Now, here's another one. <clears throat> if I, yeah, let's do this one. If I take this bottle of water and I put this little Christmas ball on top of it and I turn it over, will the water come out or will the water stay in? Okay, what if I did it again? What if I said it'll stay in? What do you think? Whoa! Okay, so what's true? Does the water stay in or does the water fall out? They can both can happen. And what's the difference? I'll tell you the difference. When I hold it on there and I turn it upside down and hold it on there, the water, the way the water creates a vacuum in the top of this and sucks it up in there. Creates a vacuum. Now, it doesn't work very well. That's why I use this one. Once you pour a bunch of the water out, it doesn't work as well. Yeah, just like that. Okay, so what did we see? Sometimes things are true. Sometimes things are false, but we need to test them. Okay, that's, that's good. That's good. I need to drink that later. I brought that from home. All right, so what do we do when we test things, right, to see if they're true? So if we were going to go back to, is Jesus going to return, how would we test that? How do we test that? Because we, we are pretty, I mean, you guys maybe you don't recognize that yet, but I'm telling you, you can believe me, it's really important that Jesus is coming back. How do we know that it's true? What do we check things in the Bible? It, go to the Bible, right? We go to the Bible because we know that it is true. That's right. So let me ask you some things then about the Bible. I'm going to ask you these questions. Nobody help. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you this thing, two things. Is it true and is it in the Bible? Maybe you guys should help. I don't know. Okay. God helps those who help themselves. True. And is it in the Bible? Have you heard that before? God helps those who help themselves? Yeah, you guys have heard it. 
It's not true, and it's not in the Bible. <laughs> Sorry about that. How about this one? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Now, your parents might have told you this one, <laughs> especially when you look at your room. Uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. Now, those in my generation have heard this from the day they were practically born. True? Is it in the Bible? What do you think? No. It's neither one. It's not true, and it's not in the Bible. How about this one? God will never give you more than you can handle. I know you guys have heard that one. True? No. Is it in the Bible? No. In fact, God makes sure he gives us more than we can handle so that we can rely on him. God never gives us more than he will not help us with. We have to rely on God. Because when he, if, he, if we say that, and Christians say that one all the time, God will never give you more than you can handle. It's simply not true, and it's not scriptural either, because God wants us to rely on him instead of ourselves. How about this one? Money is the root of all evil. Think about this one. Money is the root of all evil. What do you think? No. Does it say that? Is it true? No. And does it say that in the Bible? It says something kind of like that, though. And that's people use this, and they say money is the root of all evil, when it actually says the love of money is the cause of many evils, but not all. So why is that important? We have to carefully look at what the Bible says because sometimes people take things from the Bible and distort them a little bit because they have a point they want to make. How about this one? If God closes a door, he always opens a window. First of all, it's not true, and no, it's not in the Bible. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's what people say when, if God closes a door, he always gives me another way out. Um, not always true. Okay, let me ask you this one, and then I'll let you go. Three wise men brought gifts of frankincense, what it, gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the stable where Jesus was born. What do you think? What do you think? True? True? Sorry, not true, not in the Bible. We don't know that there were three kings. There were probably more. There were three gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but Jesus was older when they showed up. They showed up months later, and he was living in another house in Bethlehem. So what's my point? You might say, Tim, Pastor Tim, what, what, what's the point of that? Is that we, we, we already decided we have to go to Scripture for truth, right? You guys told me that. But then we have to go to Scripture and actually really carefully examine stuff that people tell us, even when it sounds like it's from the Bible Maybe they're not getting it right. Maybe they're distorting it a little bit, and maybe they're taking some things out, or maybe they pluck parts out that they want. And so it's really, really important that as a Christian, not only do we go to the Bible to find truth, but we make sure we go and study it the right way so that we make sure we know what it's saying and know the truth. Instead of just listening, don't even listen to me. I won't say that about your parents. Listen to your parents. But don't even listen to me. You check me out and say, hey, Tim, Pastor Tim, I read that in the Bible, and I don't think that you have it right. And that's okay. You can do that. Because we always want to be checking for God's version of the truth. Not my version of the truth. Not your friend's version of the truth. Not stuff you hear on the radio's version of the truth. But the real truth. And we can go to Scripture for that. And that's why it's so important that we learn, just like we're doing in Kids Jam, we learn how to read the Scriptures for all they're worth, to mine the gold out of there. Okay? So, where do we go for truth? And how do we make sure we find it right? 
We go in there ourselves and study it. Very good. All right. Go study the word. Thank you. Thank you. That's for you guys, too. Specifically about this passage. I'm afraid some of you are going to be disappointed today. Let me read the passage. We're looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12. It says 3b because we did uh, 1 and 2 and 3a last week. But we're going to read it over again just for context as we read through the rest of this. And then we're going to talk about it. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1. Turn with me in your phones, if you will. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly to come from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord's already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what's restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of the lawless is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception to those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay. If you remember from last time, Paul was addressing a problem outlined there in the first couple verses, that there were people in the church at Thessalonica who were convinced either because someone told them or they read a letter they thought was from Paul or somebody said was from Paul or they had some sort of a a spiritual uh, prophecy that said, yes, Jesus has already come again. Okay. So Paul was saying, no, no, no. Don't Don't worry, that has not yet happened. We'll look at that in the first couple verses here. So, don't be quickly shaken. So this is the problem that he's addressing in this passage. While he's doing that, while he's addressing this problem, he's going to give them some causation as to why Jesus has not yet come. Because certain things have to happen first, right? So, but, and what are the consequences? 
What are the consequences? So now concerning the coming or the parousia of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, parousia, and <clears throat> are being gathered together, which is another, another big Greek word, which means assembling together the entire collection. Okay. Two things, maybe. Two things, right? Jesus coming, the parousia, the second coming, which is described again in, by Paul in Corinthians where the, 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 they're going to final trumpet and Jesus is going to appear from the sky and the dead in Christ shall be raised first and everybody will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Okay, that is things that he, these guys don't have yet. But they, Paul's written that letter to the people at Corinth. And that's what's being described here, the second coming of Christ. Has it happened yet? Because what happens if you are deceived? Or what happens if you have other expectations? Or what if you are afraid? What is he trying to counteract by giving them the truth? Don't be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word, and then let no one deceive you. Because has the Lord come again? No. No. Quick question then. Well, actually, we'll, we'll take a look real quick at, at, at 2 Thessalonians. Um, well, what did I do? How did I miss it? Oh, here in 2 Timothy. Avoid irreverent babble. So this is another example. Happened in uh, uh, Timothy was in Ephesus. Paul was writing this letter. So he talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. So there's consequences, isn't there, when you don't have the truth about something that's important. That's what... Hmm. I dropped my little thing here. That's what Paul's trying to address. There's consequences, and I don't want those consequences to happen. Uh, we, can, we can bring that up right now to a modern-day occurrence. How many of you have heard the things going around or have heard in the past about the mark of the beast? Yeah, and it could be anything, right? I mean, uh, and I don't want to get it, and I've heard people call into Christian radio talk shows and say, well, what if it's a microchip, and what if I accidentally get it, or somebody holds me down and sticks it in there? Oh, I can't go to heaven. And they're really, really upset about it. Or what if it's this? Or what if it's a tattoo? What if, you know, what if I, what if I, I don't know what it is, and I accidentally get one because I think it's good. And then I, oh, man, then I can't go to heaven. Because it says anybody who has the mark of the beast, right? Ooh, you can't get that. And you, and you won't be able to buy or sell without it. Okay, so is there a truth there? Yeah. And were people upset when they maybe didn't know the truth? I, I can almost guarantee you it's not a microchip. It's not a tattoo. In fact, I don't even think it's an actual physical mark when it's talking about that. Now, these are some of my opinions. And it says putting the mark on your forehead and your, and your hand... It's really talking about is in the mark of the beast, and who's the beast? The Antichrist, which we're going to see here in a minute. What I think, what I do. If I think like the Antichrist and, and, and believe the lie, then I'm thinking in my head and I'm doing things in my behaviors, and that's the mark. I don't think it's an actual hold you down, give you a mark. But if I had the wrong impression of that, could I genuinely be alarmed in my mind and deceived and then swerving from the truth and upset my faith. Yeah. Paul's writing this because he believes, yeah, that could be a problem when you don't have 
the truth of something that's very important to you. And so here they were, and they were thinking, gosh, we missed this. We missed Jesus coming again. And this has been promised. In fact, we're pretty sure it's going to happen in our lifetime. That was why the previous problem back in 1 Thessalonians where they were all concerned, well, you, Jesus went back up to heaven, and then he's going to come back, and we're pretty sure he's going to come back in our lifetime. And what about people who die in the meantime? Oh, they've missed out. They don't get to go to heaven. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians said, don't, don't worry about it. Even those that are asleep are going to be raised, and nobody's going to miss it, uh, because when Jesus comes back, he's going to raise those that are dead in Christ, and everybody is going to go through the process. So don't worry. I, I understand why you might be worrying about that and how that would give you some unsettledness in your faith, but no, that's not the case. They still get to participate. Okay, so he's, he's answering those things that can cause problems in people's faith when they are deceived or they are ignorant of the truth. How many of you have ever had times in your life where you were really uncertain about how it was all going to happen and it caused you some anxiety? Liars, 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 liars. <laughs> Nobody's hand came up. Okay, hopefully... It hasn't been an enormous amount of anxiety. <clears throat> so Paul is giving them a list of events and details of events to convince them why Jesus has not yet returned for the second time. Okay, let me ask you. Has Jesus returned for the second time yet? You're pretty sure. Okay. So, do we know when that's going to happen? No. And do we know? Well, we'll see. <clears throat> if any of the things on Paul's list have happened yet, let's look. Let's look. Okay. So, this was just another example of why they are having problems with this. So, we'll start there in three. For that day, what day? The parousia, Jesus returning, that day will not come. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So what do you think it's talking about there in the rebellion? What's the rebellion? It is the, work, the Greek word apostasia. What does that sound like to you? Apostasy, right? So when the rebellion, does that mean some sort of a rebellion where... The army of Rome is going to come, and there's going to be a Jewish rebellion against the army of Rome? don't think so. It actually does mean uh, apostasy or a turning away from something you believe. Okay, so that day, Jesus returning, must then be preceded by a rebellion. It has to come first. And then next, what's the next event? Just say, go. You can tell me right there. It's, it's, it's highlighted. The man of lawlessness is going to have to be revealed. Now, who's the man of lawlessness? Okay, it's, it's he's described in other places called the man of perdition. The man, in fact, later on, he's going to call him the man of sin, sinfulness. Um, he's described in Revelation as what? The beast. Or the Antichrist. So, two things we know so far. What has to happen first? 
Rebellion, falling away, or an apostasy from the faith, and the Antichrist needs to be revealed. The son of destruction. Then he's going to, to a little bit of detail now. This is, this is detail. He's going to be revealed and he's going to oppose and ex- everything that's God. He's going to exalt himself up above God. He's going to take a seat in the temple of God and he's going to proclaim himself to be God. Got all that? Okay. Hmm. What do those things mean? He is going to oppose and exalt himself. Okay, I'm going to, he's going to come. We're going to see some other things. So he's going to, basically, when antichrist means two different things. And the, and the word, and I know you preached on this before, anti can mean two different things. Against, or instead of, or as a replacement of. I think it's both. Some of you are going to be, because in the end, he has no agenda of the real Christ. He's going to exalt himself. He's going to say, I am, I am the Christ. I'm God. He's going to come, and, he, and that's why they call him the Antichrist. Now, how many of you have read in the book of John, 1 John, 1 John, where it says, and John, and John says, there are already Antichrists at work among us. And it says, in fact, anyone who rejects the Savior coming in the flesh is the Antichrist. Well, we know for sure that's going to be one of the things. He's going to say, no, 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 that wasn't really God. I'm God. Okay. So that's got to happen first, right? So <clears throat> going to take his seat in the temple of God. Now, is that the literal temple of God or a figurative temple of God or a rebuilt temple of God sometime in the future? Anybody want to take a shot at it? I have no idea. And, and do you know what is restraining him? Verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now. Now, how, why is he saying, and you know? Because he told him that. In fact, they talked about it later, you know, in other places. You know, remember when I was there and I told you these things? So he evidently knew what it was, and he was actually transmitting that knowledge to them. So he's looking, look, you got to remember things I've already told you. Now, does he tell us? He wrote this letter under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he knows, and they know, who the restrainer is and and what it's doing. Does he tell us? Do you think God messed up there? Oh, man, they're going to want to know that. Paul, Paul, come back, come back. No. So is there a reason that he didn't tell us what the restrainer was? Pretty much sure he figured we didn't need to know. Okay, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Out of the way is a good one, isn't it? Out of the way um, means taken from... I had it somewhere. I'm missing it. He's taken to the side. I have that somewhere. I know I do. Here we go. What does it mean? There's somebody who's restraining the Antichrist from being revealed. And he's doing that until he's taken out of the way and removed from being an obstacle. 
You know how many theories there are about who that is? Uh, the Holy Spirit, the church, God himself, uh, the Roman government, human government in general, uh, one of the archangels, and there are several more I'm forgetting. If it was really important for us to know that, would God have told us? Yes, he would have. Okay, now, verse 8, And then the, lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the, nothing by the appearance of his coming. Okay, so does it look like Jesus is going to overcome the Antichrist? Yeah. So do we know that? Has that happened yet? I don't think so. Has it? Right, so you see the different things Paul's using. Guys have confidence that Jesus has not returned, which if he had returned, yes, you, it would be very, very disturbing. Yes, it would cause a lot of consternation with people if he had come and you missed it. I'm telling you, I would be very, very upset if Jesus comes and I missed it. But here you go. I can say, look, I, I feel pretty good that I haven't missed anything because there's a bunch of stuff in here that he's saying that I'm pretty sure haven't happened yet. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. With all power and false signs and wonders. So what do you think that stuff is? The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. So is he empowered by Satan, the Antichrist? Called the lawless one, called the, the son of destruction, the man of destruction, the beast in, in the book of Revelation. He's going to come and he's going to have all power. Does that mean all power over God? No. He's going to come by the power and activity of Satan. And he's going to have or be able to do some false signs and wonders. Do we know what those are? No. No. Is it important that you know what those are? Is it important that we maybe spend the next three weeks trying to figure out exactly how is this guy going to deceive us? What types of things might he do just to make sure we're not deceived? I'm not going to do that. You can if you want. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Okay, so is there going to be a, a big deception when the Antichrist comes so that people will actually believe he is God? Yes. Where is that deception coming from? Hmm, really? Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Antichrist is going to be revealed. The restrainer, whoever that is, whatever that is, is going to be taken out of the way. 
This is going to happen. He's going to put himself in position and say, I am God, and I'm going to prove it to you by doing a bunch of things that are supernaturally oriented through the power of Satan, which he will not say is Satan, but will say is God. And people will be deceived. Which people? You? I hope not. In fact, it says those who had no love of the truth. Do you think there are going to be some sitting in churches, maybe they've sat in churches for a long time, who are going to be deceived? Yeah, because I think churches have people who are not truly believers. And so don't be frightened if someone is deceived that you thought was a Christian, meaning, okay, I think that believers can be deceived. God is not going to send you a strong delusion. So, here's all these things that have to happen that Paul was using as evidence so that the Thessalonians or the church in Thessalonica would not any longer be disturbed or alarmed or rattled in their faith by thinking that Jesus had already returned and they missed it. Okay. Lots of things, we talked about some of them. So how do we interpret these things? How do we get... Now, we talked about it, but the kids are up here, right? I need to know what's going on. I need to go to the actual source of truth to determine, if it's necessary, what all these events mean and when they're going to happen because here's what I'm pretty sure. What you guys really want is for me to tell you the what, the who, and the when. You're going to be disappointed. Okay. All of those things. I could and I won't. And I have heard pastors who will sit and give you dogmatically exactly what those things mean. I can't do that. Uh, let Let me tell you why. Because... Having studied eschatology and studied the history of eschatology in the church, and I'm going to say the church, I'm going to say evangelical or born-again Christians who are truly believers have studied this subject and have disagreed for centuries. There are four, to my study, four major constructs of the view of end times. And let me give you the four. Historic premillennialism. Now, I'm going to use a bunch of eschatological, theological words. Frankly, I don't care if you remember them. They're here to show you that there are four. Okay, historic premillennialism. You're going to see a pattern here, though. Two, Dispensational premillennialism, okay? A different view of how things are going to happen. Ah, millennialism and postmillennialism. These four constructs have what in common? There's some sort of a view as to when, why, how, who 
is happening during the millennium. The millennium is mentioned where in Scripture? Revelation chapter 20. Is it anywhere else? No. Okay. So the funny part of this is that every single one of the events described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, is interpreted almost to the fine, every single one of them, differently, depending on which one of these four views you hold. Now, how can that be true? Can, can all four be true? No. And in fact, <clears throat> at least three of them are wrong, or all four of them are. Because there is just one truth. And so, my point is, I could sit up here and tell you what my view is, and this is how it's all going to happen, and this is who the restrainer is, and this is who the Antichrist is, and this is when he's coming, and, this is, and we're, we're in that day now, and this is when the end of the age is going to happen, and this is when Jesus is going to return, and this is how that relates. But let me give you some subjects that are differing within these views, besides the ones just in 2 Thessalonians. Okay, it starts with, how are you in interpreting Scripture? figuratively or literally? How many of you have taken how to study the Bible? If you haven't, you need to. If you truly have a love for the truth and you want to know what the Bible says, there are tools to help you understand when should we take the Bible literally? When should we take it figuratively? What does it mean when they're using apocalyptic language? And how would that be understood in the time that it was written? What does it mean when they're using poetic language? What kinds of things might we see in prophet, prophetic language? Prophecy? Are there things that are used that are symbolic? Absolutely. Do you think that the Antichrist or the Satan is actually a dragon? No. Or that the Antichrist is a beast? No. Or that Jesus is coming back riding on a white horse with a sword sticking out of his mouth? No. So are there places where... We need to take the Bible literally? Yes. Are there places where the Bible uses figurative or symbolic language? Yes. So one of the differences between the views is, some of the views, is that we think almost everything should be taken literally wherever possible. And another side says, no, I think a lot of this is spiritualized. I think a lot of this is symbolic. And when he says there's a mark of the beast on your hand and your forehead, it doesn't really mean an actual physical mark, nor does it mean it's actually on your hand or your forehead. So the first thing you would have to ask yourself is, okay, how am I looking at Scripture? Secondly, are you a covenant theologian or a dispensational theologian? When is the second coming going to happen in relationship to the millennium? At the end? At the beginning? Way before? Right next to it? What is and when is the rapture? What is the big one? What's it going to look like? When does it happen? Before the tribulation? After the tribulation? In the middle of the tribulation? Partially through the tribulation? And only some people are going to get raptured and the rest of them are going to get raptured later? And what about the great tribulation? Is it exactly seven years long? When is it going to happen? Are we already in it? Is it literal? Is it symbolic? What about the Antichrist? Is it an actual man? Is it an institution? Is it a government? Is it a, is it a real person? 
And the end of the age, is it, when is it going to happen? Is that, does that mean the end of the world as we know it, or, or is it just an end of a dispensation? And this is another one, uh, preterism, which is another term all throughout there. I, I don't care if you understand what those mean. But it basically, preterism is, uh, a full preterist would say, all of the prophecy that happened in the Bible has already been fulfilled in the first century. Partial preterism says part of it was fulfilled then, part of it's going to be fulfilled in the end times. And then my version of it is, I think there are multiple fulfillments all along the way. So what's my point? <clears throat> my point is, within the Christian community, there are four major constructs of how do I interpret the events of end times. I would be more than happy, and I, would, I am serious about this, to offer an eight-week class starting at the beginning of next year so we can all study eschatology together so that you can have a firm grasp of what the different views are and where you might fall within that spectrum, if that's important to you. It's not going to happen on a Sunday morning. I am not going to preach one version of eschatology as depending on which one of these four constructs, you're going to say, oh, you're completely wrong and you're an idiot and it's just going to divide us. Now, I would be more than happy to discuss my view with you personally, but we're going to go back to the same thing. Why do you believe what you believe? Simply because a guy like me told you? If you have an end times view, why do you hold that view? Now, the conclusion. Does it matter if you're wrong? It could. If you're wrong about something like the, let's just say, like the Mark of the Beast, and you're just absolutely convinced that it was uh, carrying a cell phone, and, oh my gosh, I'm carrying a cell phone, I'm not going to go to heaven. There can be things that you could learn from your end times view that could really disturb you. For instance, just throwing it out there for, uh, for an instance. If you believe that you're going to be raptured before the great tribulation and you go through a great tribulation that you feel is the great tribulation and you're still here, would you be shaken in your faith? Well, they were going to be shaken in their faith if they felt like they missed Jesus returning. So maybe... So I'm saying there could be areas of your view that if, it, if they indeed are in error could cause you to question your faith. I don't believe you're going to have the great delusion that God's going to send because he's only going to send it to those who have no love of the truth. So my point is, if you're going to be very dogmatic about a particular view of eschatology and, and give me, this means this, and this is the Antichrist, and this is when Jesus is coming back, and yes, there's going to be a literal seven years of, of uh, tribulation, and yes, this is when the rapture is going to happen, within the, then you better be using Scripture. And you better have studied it before you're dogmatic about it and, said, and, and start arguing with other Christians and saying, this is, this is the way, and I'm absolutely positive it's the way. Hopefully you're not disappointed. What do we know? For sure. Jesus is coming back. And he's going to gather you and take you to the new heaven and the new earth. It's going to happen. You're not going to miss it. It's going to, in fact, the whole world's going to see it. That's what scripture says. 
When he comes back, everybody's going to know. Everybody. Most of them are going to be unhappy about it. In fact, this says in Scripture, they're going to wish that the mountains would fall on them and cover them up. What do we know? Has Jesus returned yet? No. So are there some things that still need to happen? Evidently, or Jesus would be back again. Now, do we know if any of the things that have to have to have to happen before he returns, have some of them already happened? Maybe. Does it really matter if you understand exactly what those are? Hopefully, I'm, hopefully I'm under, you're, you're understanding I'm making a point here. Eschatology is a wonderful thing to study. There are different views that sincere Christians take regarding how it's all going to end. We don't have to divide over it. So don't be really super dogmatic about a view until you've actually studied it and you can defend it by scriptural truth only. Not just because I got brought up in a church that was that way, not just because I heard it on the radio, not just because my preacher told me that, but because I have looked at Scripture and I am pretty convinced this is my view, knowing that there are other views and we can agree to disagree on them. But also know that there is ways of being deceived that can actually bring you anxiety and cause you to doubt your faith if you are believing something that absolutely isn't true, like the mark of the beast is a cell phone. There's a reason God didn't give us all those answers. He's not stupid. He recognized before he even created us that we're going to have problems with some of these issues. That that, that it's not going to be obvious and clear that every particular aspect of Jesus' return and how the world itself is going to end is going to be difficult for us to understand. But very clearly is Jesus is coming back and we win. If God is not telling us definitively all of the details, what is he asking us to do? Trust him. Trust him. I got you, Tim. Don't worry. God is sovereign over the entire process. Every single one of us could have aspects or completely be wrong about our view. Or we're all wrong. None of us truly understands it all. That is a possibility. Recognize that that is always a possibility. But I was also telling you last week, don't lose your objectivity. Always be looking to learn from others. If you are looking for a viewpoint, take an open mind into the study of Scripture so that you aren't bringing a bias to it when you start. God, I have one desire and one desire only, to know the truth of your word. Never lose that. Never start, stop asking the questions. Never decide, ah, I've already decided what I want to know about this. I'm not interested in hearing an alternative view. That's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for scripture. There are definitely things that have not yet happened, and we are not sure which ones they are, or when they're going to happen. We need to live ready and be ready and know enough of the truth 
that we won't be deceived. We need to trust in the love and the mercy and the grace and the justice of a totally sovereign God who's working all things together for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purposes, Romans 8.28. There are plenty of things spelled out very plainly in Scripture that we all need to focus on and commit to right now. Loving God, loving others, making disciples that make disciples, and having a love for the truth. Those things are clear. We need to repent, to study, to pray, and to evangelize. Submit to the Holy Spirit and die to yourself. And live for God. And in the meantime, if you want to try to figure out how it's all going to end, more power to you. And I would love to help you on your journey, but recognize it isn't really going to matter in the end if you're right or wrong. Let's pray. Father, we are, um, man, we are so unbelievably blessed and we are so likely to take for granted what you have already given us and what you have already done for us. And we're constantly struggling with this desire to want to know it all, but we are not sovereign and we are not you. But we can rest in the assurance of your amazing grace. Help that to be enough. Not that we would not want to know your truth, but that there is some truth we are just not going to know and that trusting you and in your sovereignty and your power, your love and your grace should give us the joy and the peace that you desire us to have. And I am thankful for that. And we praise you in all your gloriousness, Father. In Jesus' holy name, amen.